Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the results of the election beyond the presidency and find that progressive policies did quite well, which should be a lesson to Democrats currently looking to find their bearings and choose a direction forward. Clips today are from Jim Hightower's Radio Lowdown, Start Making Sense, The Bradcast, an episode of Check Your Blind Spot, Democracy Now!, the Brian Lehrer Show, and the Mother Jones Podcast. Good grief, cry many progressives. How has America turned so right-wing that a flabby, narcissistic, wannabe dictator like Trump was even in the running? But wait, aside from a minority of racist, xenophobic, misogynistic voters, plus a bunch of uber-wealthy corporate profiteers making a killing from his rich man's agenda, most of Trump's rank-and-file voters are not right-wingers at all. To see evidence of this, look at the multitude of overtly progressive ballot issues that won majority support on Election Day, even in so-called Trump country. Fifty-three percent of Arizona voters said yes to a tax surcharge on incomes above $250,000 a year, specifically to raise teacher pay and recruit more teachers. A whopping 78% of Oregon voters approved a populist proposition to put strict controls on the corrupting power of big-money corporate donations and elections. 61% of Floridians voted to raise the state's minimum wage to $15 an hour, a working-class advance vehemently opposed by corporate giants and right-wing groups. 57% voted yes on a Colorado provision requiring corporations to let employees earn paid time off for medical and family needs. Between 53 and 69% of voters in six states, including in such supposedly conservative bastions as Arizona, Mississippi, and South Dakota, approved initiatives liberalizing and even legalizing marijuana and other drug use. Plus, there were some big symbolic victories, such as Mississippi replacing a Confederate symbol on its state flag with a magnolia blossom. This is Jim Hightower saying, The hope that resides in these progressive policy positions is the prospect that a truly great American majority might yet be forged, not around some mega-politician, but around our people's basic values of fairness and justice for all. The uh, postmortems in the mainstream media have focused on the way uh, the Democrats, in Biden in particular, failed to get significant returns from the Latino vote. It's dawning on the mainstream media that the category Latino is actually complex, that, you know, Cubans in Florida, Puerto Ricans in New Jersey, uh, Mexicans in Southern California are actually quite distinct groups that don't vote alike. But the most startling thing to me was the reports from Texas, from the Rio Grande Valley, that the Mexican-American communities there voted for Trump. And this was a huge surprise to Biden, too. What's your understanding of what's going on in Texas? Well, first of all, I mean, Texas is the great prize, the key to the future of American politics. It's the powerhouse of the Republican Party. And to a large extent, it offsets California's uh, huge vote in electoral college delegation. Texas Democrats have pleaded, screamed for years, for more involvement and, and investment from the national 
Democrats. The 2018 election, where Beto O'Rourke came within a couple points of unseating Cruz, was powerful ammunition for the cause of making Texas a battleground. At the end of the day, it was Bloomberg and another Democratic billionaire who finally, late in the race, pumped a lot of money in. And that money was all targeted on nine or 10 Texas House legislative seats. And the reason this was seen as so important is because one way that the Republicans have been fighting uh, and trying to prevent the translation of demographic change into a Democratic majority has been their ability to gerrymander the state. Texas, of course, is now majority minority and has been for 12 or 14 years. So seeing if they could win nine of those seats, then the Democrats would have control of the legislature and they could prevent a new gerrymander. In fact, they lost all of those seats. Now, an odd thing is about this, that almost every veteran campaign manager and uh, political consultant in Texas will say it's not the suburbs. Uh, Texas Observer, by the way, pointed out that this clearly reveals there is a ceiling to democratic progress in the suburbs. It's not the suburbs that are the key. It's South Texas with its huge reservoir of non-voting people, you know, who are Democrats or should be. Democrats. And Perez, the head of the DNC, acknowledged this. He and Kamala Harris made this, you know, last minute visit two or three days before the election to South Texas. And he says, South Texas is the key to uh, Texas and to national politics. But in fact, the Democrats did hardly anything to bring out the vote in South Texas, believing this was a captive, safe, democratic area. And I'm actually talking not so much about San Antonio, which is, of course, a well-organized uh, political machine run by the Castro brothers, but the seven major border counties. Now, Clinton won those by 40 percent. Biden only run, won them by 15 percent. And in one poor 80 percent Latino county, Valverde County, that's the McAllen, Texas area, big uh, NAFTA corridor, the Republicans took this. And this has been interpreted in, in different ways. Some people say, well, Tejanos are more conservative than Chicanos. Too many of them work for ICE, or it's the Catholic right to light vote down there. But these kinds of explanations don't stand up to the fact that Bernie Sanders was hugely successful in the border areas in South Texas. He won all uh, the populous counties from San Antonio uh, South. Now, he had 200 young Latino organizers full-time on his national staff. So he was able to devote considerable resources and create the strong impression that he was listening and understood the needs of the community. So it's not so much that Latinos, Tejanos in South Texas, have turned to the right, but the ones who turned to the left had so little motivation to vote for Biden. Also, I want to talk about the Rust Belt, which you did that wonderful research on in the, your Jacobin piece about the 2016 election, where you focused on places that had been organized by the CIO in the 30s and followed what happened to them politically uh, over the last decade. Just remind us what your methodology is there and what you're finding now. 
Well, what I did in 2016 is I just looked at county returns in 15 cases of smaller, medium-sized industrial cities that had voted twice for Obama. And then I went back and I read through the local press in each area, and I found examples of significant job losses, new plant closures, which seemed to correlate to the fact that uh, Trump seemed to speak more directly to these issues than Clinton did. So I've just revisited this. And of course, the statistics are still somewhat provisional. But what they show is that Biden was able to reclaim a couple of areas, most significantly Erie, Pennsylvania, a major industrial center, which has had recently big losses from its its largest plant, which is the G plant that makes uh, locomotive engines. But on the other hand, Trump won Mahoning County, which is Youngstown area. And overall, Biden's progress in the counties he won is only about a two or two and a half percent improvement over Clinton. And only one case, Rock Island County, Illinois, which is part of this uh, Quad City area, did he actually repair the damage of the 2016 election? Now, one way to look at this is, I mean, when Biden speaks about employment and the future of work in the country, he constantly talks about millions of jobs created by green energy. Those millions of jobs are an empty abstraction on the dinner tables of these areas when people are sitting down looking at their bills. And because so many of them were former Obama supporters, you can't easily connect their votes for Trump to racism. But the point is, the Democratic parties had a generation to answer the simple question of what are you going to do to increase employment opportunity and economic stability in Erie or Laredo or Warren, Ohio? I mean, you know, you can go on. And the Democrats have had no answer. That's not just an American problem. What you've seen in Western Europe, where hardcore industrial bastions of, of, of the left, the European equivalents of the Rust Belt, north of England, uh, north of France, eastern Germany, and so on, is that labor and social, social democratic parties haven't provided those answers either. The answers have to consist, I think, of geographically targeted public investment, controls over capital flight, financial outflows, and most of all, the real solution to the to the jobs question is a massive expansion of public employment. And of course, apart from the actual social democrats in Congress, the squad and the people who've been newly elected, no no Democrat is prepared to go down that road. Democrats have you know just cower in front of the you know kind of villainous attacks on 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 government and, and the public sector since the Reagan era began. So, you know, you have kind of stasis there. Trump didn't make any gains. To the extent he made gains, uh, they can be entirely attributed to people who voted for the Libertarian Party in 2016, now voted uh, for him. So there's no real change at all. It seems like uh, we saw a lot of that. A lot of the, 
Well, it's sort of a lot of things that might come under the uh, the rubric of defund the police. And I know uh, that's uh, freaked out a lot of Democrats. Oh, you should have never said defund the police. But whether they should say it or not, uh, it seems like that is what is happening in the wake of uh, the killing of, of George Floyd in Minneapolis uh, that sparked protests, you point out, and outrage in the middle of this uh, presidential election. You report in cities nationwide, from Philadelphia to Columbus, Ohio to San Diego, the voters were asked about plans to create police oversight, board, oversight boards, expand the powers of existing oversight bodies, and yes, divest from law enforcement, also known as defund the police, and uh, impose requirements such as body cameras and so forth. Uh, how did those measures fare across the country this year, Daniel? Yeah, that's, that there were many different type of measures put on the ballot over the summer by city councils who were kind of responding to the wave of protests. Uh, over the summer, um, ma- many of them, the majority of these ma- measures this year were about creating o- oversight boards with the authority to do independent investigations that compel police officers from participating. Um, as far as I'm aware, every measure that I had on my list before the election uh, passed um, with civil oversight boards and a few other issues. Now, what's interesting, uh, Brad, going forward is that the police unions in places like Columbus, Ohio, and Portland, Oregon have already effectively show, shown their hands that they want to either file suits against the measures or that they're saying that the measures, the oversight board that has been constructed go, goes against the contract that they have with the city, that, that this mm-hmm. form of oversight breaks breaks their right. Um, so that's going to be a battle, a major battle going forward uh, in, in these cities as to how to implement this. And more broadly, maybe, I think what we're seeing what what we've seen in the elections, other law enforcement elections, is the conversation has shifted from the question of how to do things differently to, in some cases, how to do fewer things, mm-hmm. how to prosecute fewer types of behavior, mm-hmm. how to get fewer people in the system, how to reduce the number of interactions overall with law enforcement. And that, and, and that question of shrinking, reducing, is something that, um, is the result of a lot of activism organizing, not not just this summer, but but also over the past mm-hmm. few years, of course. And in fact, in here in Los Angeles, uh, voters approved Measure J. That's a county level ballot initiative that redirects ten percent of unrestricted county funds toward community investment, specifically. And you know, when we hear the uh, phrase uh, "defund the police," uh, it it is. Uh, I mean, you know, Republicans have made it a thing and Democrats are now worried about it, but it really is a matter of taking funding away from uh, things that police should not be doing, that they are not very good at doing. Uh, do we actually have data, uh, Daniel, yet to understand if any of that is is true, that uh, that this defund the police idea actually did hurt Democrats, The, the if it's the phrase itself uh, that freaks out voters versus something, you know, more accurate, like, oh, move funds that we're giving the police for stuff that they shouldn't be doing and aren't good at and give it to other groups and individuals who are not quite as snappy. Uh, but I guess it's a bit less scary. Is uh, Do we have evidence one way or another as to how voters are actually responding? Because when we see measures on the ballot that are doing exactly that, they seem to be very popular. Yeah, you know, it's, it's going to be a conversation that's going to happen uh, at, for the National Democrats, because they're already having it for the past week. I'm sure we've all, we've all heard it. I think what's important to remember is that independently of that debate, 
the the organizers and activists who are trying to, who who have really uh, pushed in places like Minneapolis, LA, New York, mm-hmm. DC, who are trying to push their their city council, who have really been very resistant to shrinking the size of the police um, and, uh, and 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 steering funds elsewhere. Um, the, the the very blue jurisdictions we're talking about have not been very friendly to that sort of argument in any way, and certainly in recent years, especially with the um, arguments about the need for increased increased policing, increased criminalization, and and so the the organizing in those places has been very successful in at least changing the conversation, changing the, the terms of the debate, um, and opening the door to these new policies that have to do with shrinking the size of the criminal legal system and law enforcement, and, and that's where and, and that's really what the, the goal of the of the demands and movement have been. So now the, there's a separate question of how maybe this has impacted national Democrats as a whole, and I think it's a bit early to have a uh, full analysis of that. Mm-hmm. But I think when we see um, a place like, like San Francisco voters voted to end the mandate to have a, to have a minimal size of the police force, because that was in the city charter. Mm-hmm. And so the, the voters were asked whether they wanted to repeal it, which wouldn't automatically do anything, but would open the door to potentially shrinking the police force mm-hmm. below what was the minimal level, and that passed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's interesting uh, conversations that were just not really thinkable um, at the level of actual adoption a year ago, five five years ago, uh, or certainly pr- prior to the newer waves of protests around these issues. Is uh, you also uh, describe prosecutors who ran on on a platform of fighting mass incarceration that they seem to have won uh, a number of key races in Austin, Orlando, Oakland, Tucson. Is that largely a uh, a blue city thing, or do we see evidence in Republican leaning locales? Uh, as well yet for that, given that the Trump administration and some Republicans are at least acting like they are in favor of ending mass incarceration and over sentencing. Has has that worked its way into the uh, the the not uh, uh, blue controlled areas yet? Uh, right. Prosecutor um, level. Right. Right. A very important question. And I have a two, two part answer. One is we have seen some um suburban, more swingy or more purple mm-hmm. areas kind of start embracing, uh, start electing people who have ran on criminal justice reform as very core to their campaign. Uh, Colorado was a state this year where we saw a couple of uh, suburban jurisdictions kind of flip from Republican control to Democratic control in DA mm-hmm. offices with, with some such messaging. Uh, we saw Virginia last year elect a wave of prosecutors who ran on reform platforms in suburban areas. Um, so that's umbrella number one. But I also want to say that the incarceration crisis in this country, which is which is not a new crisis, it's a mm-hmm. very long-standing problem of toughing crime norms and sentencing. Mm-hmm. That is not a conservative uh, state issue only. That is not just a red county issue. It is not particularly. Uh, it's not different enough in, the, in in bluer areas and progressive cities, places like. Uh, LA, which mm-hmm. um, you mentioned earlier, that just elected a new DA who really ran on incarceration issues and, and decreasing incarceration. Places like New Orleans, these places are going democratic, certainly in every election, but the, the fight within the Democratic Party, between people who have represented very punitive um, policies and very punitive um, laws, mm-hmm. and people who really ran within the Democratic Party on, on, on breaking that, has been very, very important, and that's where we see a lot of change, which should not be minimized just because, um, just because it's a Democratic 
uh, area, mm-hmm. places like L.A., just because of the history of incarceration there and the history of the racism of law, uh, of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, longtime Republican sheriffs, county sheriffs with the strong pro-ICE records, essentially anti-immigrant records. Uh, you say that uh, we saw a, a number of those sheriffs being ousted around the country, including in Georgia and South Carolina. Really? Yeah. Um, so that's very, that's again interesting. And actually, actually, maybe it shouldn't be a a surprise because the big, uh, one big story in 2018, which I, I, I talked about a lot at the time, was, uh, a wave of sheriffs in North Carolina specifically. There were five, um, sheriffs were elected in the state's biggest counties, all on a platform of, of cutting ties with ICE or curtailing ties with ICE. Um, and, and now we saw the organizing around immigrant rights advocacy. Um, happened in Georgia, happened in South Carolina, happened also in other states like Florida and Texas, where 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 candidates ran on this were less successful. But um, so in some of the biggest counties in Georgia and South Carolina, candidates who ran on breaking contracts with ICE, on no longer contracting with ICE to help them arrest people locally, um, keep people in jail locally on immigration grounds, and and, and that was a successful message. Maybe you haven't always thought of socks as the perfect gift or the perfect way to give back, but actually Bomba's socks were made to give, literally. When you give a pair of super comfortable Bomba's socks, you're not only giving someone a gift they'll love, you're also donating a specially designed pair to someone in need. Because for every pair of socks Bomba sells, they donate a pair to someone experiencing homelessness across the U.S. Because socks are the number one most requested item at homeless shelters. Bombas are especially engineered to be the most comfortable pair of socks you and everyone on your list has ever worn. I know this firsthand. I'm a sucker for comfy sock myself, and I've been hooked on Bombas for years now. Plus, they come in a ton of different colors and styles, including athletic performance socks, limited edition holiday socks, dress socks, and socks made from merino wool. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of 3,000-plus giving partners. So, from comfort to kindness and everything in between, Bombas aren't just givable, they were made to give. Go to bombas.com best today and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale, November 18th through December 2nd. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off bombas.com slash best. It's time once again to play America's favorite political game show. Check your blind spot. That's right, it's Check Your Blind Spot, brought to you and powered by our sponsor, the Ground News app, the first ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. The Ground News app features The Blind Spot, which highlights news stories that just aren't being covered by one end of the political spectrum or the other, so I use The Blind Spot to quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is our reigning champion, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hello. Aww. <laughs> They're excited to have you back. Yeah. Let's see if you can keep them on your side. Oh. They are a famously fickle bunch. Yeah, yeah. 
So I'm going to tell you about news stories, and you're going to tell me which side of the political spectrum is blind to them. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Let's dive right in to round one. In whose political blind spot is this story? Biden says advocate of federal hate speech law would oversee government media transition. So this is in reference to Richard Stingle, the agency review team lead for the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is in charge of the Voice of America and similar outlets. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post a while ago titled, Why America Needs a Hate Speech Law. He says that while advocating for the value of free speech around the world, he found that the U.S.'s First Amendment is an outlier and was designed during a different era when there was a reasonable belief that truth could win out in the marketplace of ideas. Now that social media and the internet has shown that to no longer be the case, if it ever was, he has come to see the lack of a hate speech law as a design flaw. Oh my goodness. Hmm. I'm going to guess this is in the left's blind spot because I could see the right getting really nervous about free speech issues. All right. That is absolutely correct. And and your reasoning is spot on. I, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Let's move on to round two. In whose political blind spot is this story? Congresswoman-elect Cori Bush attended a new member orientation at the Capitol wearing a Breonna Taylor face mask and says that several of her Republican colleagues greeted her and addressed her as Breonna. Yeah, um, I caught wind of this, so I'm going to guess that it's in the right blind spot. <laughs> Indeed, it is uh, unsurprising. Yeah. But you know, as, yeah. as she has been going around saying, I'll just reiterate: it is is such perfect evidence of how we are living in different worlds. Oh yeah, we're in bubbles, right? <laughs> and her concern is like, how can we even expect to work together on issues to address what yeah, we care so much about? If you don't even know <laughs> what we're talking about, exactly. Yeah. All right, two for two. Well done. Let's move mm -hmm. on to round three. In whose political blind spot is this story? Here's all the facts of the of this story. So okay. Biden's cancer charity. Mm -hmm. It spent approximately $3.7 million in salaries. Mm -hmm. It facilitated about $400 million in cancer research funding from partner organizations. And it was shuttered after Biden left the organization to begin his presidential campaign. Hmm. I actually haven't heard anything about this. Um, so I'm going to guess <laughs> that it's in the left's blind spot because the right was so obsessed with Clinton's foundation. I would expect them to be also obsessed with Biden's foundation. Correct. Ah, no one's obsessed with Trump's foundation, though, just to be clear. <laughs> Which no, doesn't exist right. anymore because it committed because such crimes exactly. that it was shut down. So so this was one of these things that if I had read you the headline, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been fair from the get-go. So I had to read oh, okay. you facts okay. instead. <laughs> so the headlines uh -huh. coming from the right, this is a pretty representative one. Biden's cancer charity raked in millions but spent nothing on medical research tax filings show. But that's not actually the case. It is technically true. Oh, 
because they didn't take in the money and distribute the funds directly. They facilitated the donations from partner organizations to right, their foundation. Right. They're just Which not is funneling the money to the right places. But they weren't the ones doing the funneling. Okay. They were they were facilitating meetings and encouraging partner organizations like corporations to donate money directly to cancer ah, funding okay. that was not funneled through Biden's charity. Mm. And so their their tax filings show that they spent $3.7 million on salaries mm-hmm. and didn't give any money to charity ah. because that is technically true, but wildly misleading. Right. So right. It, it's this perfect example yeah. of how yeah. you can tell the truth and be intentionally wildly misleading. Yep. And so almost none of the stories with headlines like this include mention of how they facilitated $400 million right, right, in cancer right. funding. It's just that their tax filings make no mention of it because they didn't, they never touched the money. Right, right. But what I think is the real scandal here is that the Biden foundation had to shutter when he and Jill left. Right. Because for ethics uh-huh. concerns, they didn't want to be involved in the charity at the same time as they were running yep. for president, yep. which is fine. But why did it have to shutter after they left? Because the partner organizations who were previously willing to give $400 million to cure cancer Uh were no longer willing to give any money if Joe Biden wasn't there to thank them for it. It's it's all about PR. (laughs) Right. Joe Biden was able to raise $400 million because then Joe Biden would go give speeches saying, look at this great organization, this great corporation giving money to cancer research. If they couldn't get that PR hit, then they weren't going to give the money. Layers. That's the real story here Mm -hmm. in in, in my perspective. (laughs) Well, once again, excellent job. Winner and still champion. (laughs) Thank you. Amanda from Boston. Thank you for playing. They love me. They love me. That wraps it up for today. (laughs) It's important to mention, of course, that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone and definitely not that of the staunchly unopinionated ground news. If you'd like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features, and let them know we sent you, go to ground.news slash best. And as always, whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to check your So the thing that primarily got Donald Trump elected the first time, in the first place, the only time, was his stand on immigration. His false assertion that Mexican immigrants tended to be criminals, the proposals to build the border wall and mount a deportation force that came with it, and his proposal to ban all Muslims from entering the United States were the centerpieces of the 2016 campaign. In office, he's gone as far as politics and the courts have allowed him to go to stop immigration, legal as well as illegal, in its tracks. So with Joe Biden preparing to govern, how much Trump policy can or should he reverse 
with the stroke of a pen, how much does he want to, and how much further can Biden go on the unresolved immigration issues that he needs Congress for that got us here in the first place, what the George Bush, John McCain, and even Lindsey Graham Republicans, plus the Democrats, used to call comprehensive immigration reform. Let's get an immigration advocate's take and see what advocates are prioritizing and think is possible. With us now is Anu Joshi, Vice President of Policy for the New York Immigration Coalition. Anu, great to have you on again. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks so much, Brian. Let's talk about today. So what can Joe Biden do on day one? Well, there are a number of things that he can do. I mean, I think first and foremost is rolling back all of the horrible anti-immigrant policy changes that some of which you just mentioned that the Trump administration has spent four years implementing. You know, we expect on day one that a President Biden will immediately reinstate full Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, that he will immediately reinstate the Temporary Protected Status Program, TPS, uh, for the, you know, um, close to 350,000 people living in this country who are currently at risk. Um, And we also expect um, that he will immediately have institute a moratorium on immigration enforcement, you know, for the last four years, and frankly, for the last 30 years, we've seen just increasing amounts of money and influence given to immigration enforcement agencies like ICE and Customs and Border Protection. And we need a reset. We need to really look at, you know, how these agencies have really just gone out of control, become rogue agencies that terrorize American families. And we expect Biden to really institute an immediate moratorium on immigration enforcement activity. When you say a moratorium on immigration enforcement activity, that sounds so sweeping. And of course, the Republicans run against the Democrats by saying, oh, you elect Joe Biden or other Democrats, they're going to have open borders. What's the difference between open borders and no immigration enforcement? So there's a big difference, I think. One, and you know, what I do want to say is that I think this election was a repudiation of Trump's anti-immigrant policy. So people might say that, but voters clearly spoke and said, no, this is not what we want um, in the leaders that are uh, making decisions for our country. Um, but two, I think what we've seen over the last four years is how our immigration enforcement agencies, rather than trying to keep Americans safe, are actually, you know, really trying to terrorize what are American families. Um, so, this could look like um, immediately, you know, putting a pause on all deportations because we know right now people are being deported without access to attorneys, without access to real due process. People who have been New Yorkers who have lived here for decades, who have families here and are not able to really make their case in immigration court and they're being deported. Um, We also know that people are being um, held in immigration detention for months and years on, you know, for no reason um, that they're being stripped from their families um, and um, held in this detention, vast, you know, under-resourced criminal detention system where COVID is spreading for no reason. Um, And that, you know, on day one, a President Biden could immediately, um, you know, order the release of um, immigrants being held in detention while they wait for their fair day in court. 
Um, I think along the border, you know, what we've seen is an out-of-control border patrol. Um, we have laws in place that govern how people can enter this country, how people can apply for asylum in this country, which is their right under multiple international and domestic laws. And those are completely being ignored and in some cases flouted, you know. Um, and so it's really just a return to um, the, you know, upholding people's rights and ability to take, to really fully embrace those rights within our current system. The heart-wrenching and outrageous practice of separating parents from children, children from their parents at the southern border, part of that, the so-called cages, goes back to the Obama-Biden administration. If they just turn back the clock on that policy to the day before Trump, where would they actually be and how would you feel about it? Not great. Right. We need more than just uh, what was happening before Trump. We, you know, we need a more expansive, morally just vision for what our immigration system could look like. And we've heard President Biden, President-elect Biden on the campaign trail talking about how they didn't get it right back then in 2014 when President Obama, you know, dramatically expanded family detention for immigrants in this country. It was a moral failure. Um, we know that, of course, under President Trump, that program was, um, you know, quadrupled, exploited. Um, families were ripped apart. Kids were held in cages apart from their from their parents, which was not happening under the Obama-Biden administration. We saw the implementation of the zero tolerance policy at the southern border, which, you know, required uh, the the prosecute the criminal prosecution of anyone attempting to um, seek asylum in the United States, um, but we expect more. You're absolutely right. Um, we don't want to just go back. We know that the Obama Biden administration deported more people than any other presidential administration in history, and so um, we expect more. We think that the American people expect more, and have really made that clear. Um, I want to talk about comprehensive immigration reform. Um, there's, we, let me read something to you from the endorsement of Lindsey Graham for re-election last month by the South Carolina newspaper, The Post and Courier. Quote, Mr. Graham was an early proponent of comprehensive immigration reform. He worked with a group of Democrats and Republicans that hammered out a plan to revamp the country's myriad immigration laws. The plan also included a strategy for border security and a reasonable path to citizenship, not amnesty, for the millions of immigrants already in the country. That effort should be revived as soon as possible, unquote. So that's from a South Carolina newspaper endorsing Lindsey Graham. And I actually saw Lindsey Graham get criticized by Tucker Carlson on Fox last week on this basis. Carlson was asking, basically, do we now go back to Lindsey Graham amnesty? Uh, so does a Biden White House and a McConnell-Graham Senate have a coalition for comprehensive immigration reform that you're interested in? I don't think so, Brian. I think that the days of um, trying to negotiate with, uh, you know, Majority Leader McConnell, who may not be Majority Leader next year, depending on the Georgia runoff, right, right. Um, are long behind us. We have seen in this country 
three decades of just increasing, seemingly never-ending funding for immigration enforcement, for border security, for ICE, for tearing apart families. And I think that the price that a Majority Leader McConnell and a, and a the current iteration of a Senator Lindsey Graham, you know, although who knows what iteration will be next year, um, is too high, high to pay. Our families have already paid such a high price. You know, in this country, we spend $25 billion a year on immigration enforcement. And um, that results, directly results in the separating of families. And, and I don't think that that's something that, you know, our community here in New York, the immigrant community across the country, will be able to stomach. And I don't think it's something the American people would be able to stomach um, in exchange for some kind of limited legalization program. You know, what we're demanding is we've already made this horrific down payment on on immigration enforcement, on border security. It's time for a real legalization plan that puts the 11 million undocumented immigrants and their family members on a real road to citizenship. And Unfortunately, I think that the price that a McConnell would ask would be far too high. We're going to turn right now to a comment that is brewing part of the debate that's happening right now about the direction of the Democratic Party. This is House Majority Whip James Clyburn of South Carolina, uh, who went on several Sunday talk shows to criticize calls to defund the police, arguing the phrase hurts Democratic congressional candidates. Here he is on NBC's Meet the Press, citing the defeat of Jamie Harrison uh, in South Carolina against incumbent Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Jamie Harrison started to plateau when defund the police showed up with a caption uh, on TV right across his head, that stuff hurt Jimmy. And that's why I spoke out against it a long time ago. Right. I've always said that these headlines can kill uh, a political effort. That's uh, Congress member Clyburn uh, speaking on the Sunday talk shows. Clyburn is uh, credited with um, really Joe Biden winning the Democratic primaries, having endorsed him right before the South Carolina primary, uh, which then launched him to victory. I wanted to first go to Bree Newsom Bass. Uh, you're in the Carolinas, but you're in the other one. You're in North Carolina. Can you talk about this major debate, this debate for the soul of the Democratic Party right now, Bree? Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, first of all, to this argument that is being made so fiercely right now, uh, you know, attacking the defund the police effort. I mean, I have yet to see anyone provide any concrete data that supports that claim other than people making this conjecture. I mean, I live in the Carolinas. I have seen all of the ads that have been running. I mean, they were also running a lot of ads trying to tie Jamie Harrison to Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi. So, I mean, unless someone is showing data that can really show that, you know, one or the other is what led to Jamie Harrison specifically plateauing in South Carolina, which is a deeply red state, uh, you know, was an uphill battle against, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham to begin with. 
you know, I, I don't I frankly don't give that a whole lot of weight. And I think, again, we cannot gloss over um, the racial aspect of this whole situation. So we, we're talking about a, a situation where the Democratic leadership um, is making the claim simultaneously making the claim that we need to reach across the aisle. We need to engage in bipartisanship with the party that is not acknowledging the election results, the party that just tried to prevent us from having a free and fair election, the party that engaged in rampant voter suppression, a disenfranchisement and intimidation, uh, and particularly in communities of color, um, the, the party that, uh, you know, is, is completely opposed uh, to the idea of our existence, the, the party that is um, essentially advocating a form of genocide through medical neglect that has been, uh, you know, ravaging our communities. Um, and, and so we can't we can't just gloss over when people are saying that the path forward is to build with Republicans and at the same time to essentially demonize, um, make a boogeyman of black activism and black causes. Um, Rokana is exactly correct. It is the it is the organizer, the same exact people who have been organizing black communities around issues that impact us that mobilize those voters for the Biden Harris win. Uh, you know, I've also seen people making uh, reference to progressives as being the ones who are being divisive or, you know, uh, ending the truce within the, the Democratic Party. And it's it's quite the opposite. You had a situation where you have a significant um, segment of people who, you know, either traditionally vote Democrat, um, a lot of people who are completely disengaged from the electoral process completely um, because they feel that regardless of who is in power, their needs are not met. Regardless of, you know, who is in power, the police continue to kill us. Regardless of who is in power, we do not have access to proper health care. We do not have access to housing. Um, so you had a lot of organizers who had to do a lot of heavy lifting to convince folks that it was worthwhile um, simply to get Trump out to mobilize behind Biden and Harris. And that's why you got Georgia turning out as it did. That's how you got Arizona, um, you know, turning out as it did. So in my view, for anyone to look at the election results and for the takeaway to be, we need to figure out how to appeal to the Lindsey Graham voters and, you know, uh, and, and the, the uh, deeply red districts, as opposed to recognizing that there's an entire electorate um, that is younger, that represents, um, you know, where the electorate is going. It's younger. It's, it's more diverse. Uh, it can win you states in the South. This is the argument that Stacey Abrams has been making for quite some time. Um, instead of looking at things and saying, how can we invest more in black and indigenous and people of color organizing? How can we, uh, you know, really look at those issues? I mean, this is again going to what Rokana was saying. I mean, politically, that makes a lot more sense than saying, how, how do we tap into the electorate that lost the presidential election, the electorate that is shrinking? Um, and then morally, the election, the electorate that opposes democracy because they are more committed to racism than they are to the idea of a democracy that allows everyone to participate. So, you know, again, I just think that we cannot we cannot gloss over. And yes, I, rep I recognize, of course, that James Clyburn is a longstanding, you know, uh, uh, politician from South Carolina. He is black. And I don't you know, I am sure that he recognizes what the, the uh, you know, political landscape is like in South Carolina. 
Carolina. But if we're looking at the bigger picture, um, they're going to cost themselves the Senate race in Georgia. If, if the case that they're making is that we're going to try to lean more towards Republican than making it clear to people that unless they turn folks out for those uh, Senate seats in Georgia, you're not going to have access to the things that you need, like health care and all these other things. So if they embrace a more you know centrist or Republican agenda, then the takeaway from folks is going to be, again, that it doesn't matter <laughs> whether they turn out to vote or not. So I think it's just like the complete opposite. And the fact that the focus and the immediate aftermath of the election, when we are still dealing with the situation of a president who does not acknowledge the election results, we've got him stoking violence among white supremacists who are threatening violence against sitting governors who have threatened to blow up ballot counting centers that folks would pick defunding the police as the, you know, as the target, as the threat, as the danger, um, when you're talking about communities that are that are still being killed by police and still turning out to support this party in spite of that complete opposite direction of, of where they should be going. That brings us to Professor Eddie Glaude. Uh, Professor, you tweeted this quote from James Baldwin. It has always seemed much easier to murder than to change. And this is really the choice with which we are confronted now. Explain. Well, you know, there's a sense in which uh, the the reckoning that we find ourselves involves the question of whether or not we're going to fundamentally embrace the idea that we are a multiracial democracy. Uh, and the history of the country suggests that we uh, uh, constantly, when faced with that question, will double down on violence. Uh, that white America will choose violence to defend its way of life, to defend those noxious assumptions that have in some ways led to the organization of our way of life predicated upon this idea that white people ought to be valued more than others, that they will, in fact, uh, you know, exact a certain kind of violence to defend that view. Uh, and so Baldwin in this moment is kind of marking this, right? That is, America is always talking about it changing, but it never changes, right? And so what's so interesting about the conversation uh, around uh, the, Repub uh, the Democratic Party is that it's actually insane. Right, that we would think that the way the way to respond to the scale of problems that we confront as a nation is to hearken back to an older form of politics, that is DLC third way democratic oriented, you know, democratic politics that seems to try to triangulate and appeal to this Reagan Democrat they are, that they are so obsessed with as a way of responding to this problem. It makes no sense that we would go back to the politics that actually produced Trumpism in the first place. That's the first point. The second or the second point, the second, the, the third point is this. We can't allow these folks to dis disentangle Trumpism from the Republican Party. I think this is what Brie Newsom Bass is trying to suggest to us. We can't allow them to disentangle these two things. They are one in the same. So what are you asking for when you talk about reaching across the aisle? What are you asking us to do when you talk about uh, reaching across the aisle in unity. We won't do that again. That's not going to happen this time. And then lastly, we need to get beyond, I think, these narrow labels. The politics is much more muddled, right? We need to get beyond these narrow labels. We need to get beyond big government and small government and smart, smart government and get to transformational government. We need to understand what defund the police means. Budget your values. Budget your values. That's what it means at the heart of it, right? Why are you spending 60, 70 percent of your municipal budgets on policing when you have education, social services and the like? Stop lying. Stop lying. And then what we need to pay attention to. Lastly, I'll say this real quickly. We need to pay attention to who Biden appoints as his secretary of Treasury. 
if we get another Reubenite, if we see someone in that tradition, we know what we got. And so remember, we celebrate yesterday and the day before, but today begins the hard work. The problems of this nation require us to break from the old frames. And we will not allow Clyburn. We will not allow Kamala Harris's symbolic insignificance. We will not allow the threat of Donald Trump to get us from seeing that that is the issue. We have to break the political frame that got us in this mess in the first place. We've just heard clips today, starting with Jim Hightower helping us remember to focus on the widespread progressive results of the election. Start Making Sense spoke with Mike Davis about the need for Democrats to embrace the working class again. The broadcast highlighted progress on criminal justice reform. You heard an episode of Check Your Blind Spot. Democracy Now! had on Bree Newsom and Eddie Glaude Jr. to discuss the relationship between the Democratic Party and black voters. The Brian Lehrer Show discussing the need for changes to our immigration system going forward, and the Mother Jones podcast looking at the road ahead for addressing climate change. And now we would usually be hearing from you, but frankly, we're just a little short on messages today, either voicemail or voiced mail. Maybe we'll get some over the holiday, but I will move straight on to my final thoughts, which is I want to tell you about something that uh, came about because I've been thinking a lot about the variety of ways that the media or the way we consume news, I guess, more specifically, is, is influenced by you know, algorithms and filter bubbles, obviously the existence of fake news and how all of this comes together to sort of produce this hyper-polarization that we're experiencing. And so I've just been thinking about these things and and reading various uh, ideas about it. And something I came across that I thought was worth sharing is a it's an online game that helps you understand the manipulation techniques that are often at the heart of total chaos that breaks out online. So it doesn't help you break out of filter bubbles, but it may help you recognize fake news. And it is maybe mostly focused on the hyperpolarization in that it's helping people recognize the paths that conversations take online that end up going in really unproductive directions. So, so it's, it's focusing in on the techniques like using a very highly emotionally charged language when it is not necessarily called for. And that that is a technique to elicit emotional and otherwise thoughtless responses. It gets people highly engaged. It gets a lot, a lot of clicks, but it doesn't ever lead to thoughtful conversation. So I just want to tell you about it. The, the game is called Harmony Square. You can find it at harmonysquare.game, and it takes about 10 minutes to play through. I, I played it for the first time a couple of days ago and found it, first of all, genuinely amusing. 
and actually informative. And the whole premise of it is that you play the part of a bad guy trying to cause chaos and to do the best job possible of causing chaos. You have to learn the techniques to cause chaos. And in doing so as the player, as you learn these techniques, you, as they describe it, which is very fitting for the day and age we're living in, you become sort of inoculated to them to some degree. The game itself acts as a bit of a fake news hyperpolarization vaccine. Because once you understand how the techniques work, you will see them in the real world and react to them differently because you understand what's going on. So I just wanted to leave you with that a little bit more positivity in a, in a you know relatively positive show compared to what we're used to. Again, it's HarmonySquare.game, and uh, you know maybe it's something to encourage family members to play over Thanksgiving, something like that. We are going to be taking a break for the coming week. You'll be hearing rerun episodes as usual in the feed. Otherwise, we will be back, uh, you know, after after the holiday. As always, you can keep comments coming in. In the meantime, you can call us at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.